Well, um, Cake came down and took one look at me this morning and said, you must have gotten the memo on the dress code for the choir today. I don't know about that. We're somehow in sync, but I definitely did get the memo from God. This, this prayer is an embodiment of the song that the choir sang, Lord, let your light shine on us. This is the prayer. This is the passage that we're in where his light shines on John, and he wants that same light to shine on us today. So as you see this shirt, lift up a prayer that that would indeed happen today by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn together to the, Revela- to the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 1. You know, we were at Jim and Barbie Murphy's home for dinner last week, and Jim asked me if I had listened to his sermon. We were talking about sermons and things, and my sermons and his, and if he, I happened to have listened to a sermon on December 9th of this last year. Well, I hadn't, and so I, I forgot about it until yesterday noon or so, and I went and looked at, uh, 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 listened to it, and the first thing I thought after I finished is, this guy's preaching my sermons. <laughs> Though, it's probably not best to put it that way around here. <laughs> but, uh, sorry about that. I guess not only do we look alike, we kind of preach alike. Who knows what else is involved there? It was like I was seeking actually confirmation yesterday morning that, that I should uh, give this passage the particular application and slant that I felt God was leading me to do. And yesterday noon, I listened to a sermon, and that was the confirmation I had asked for, for the confidence that I needed today. You know, I've done a lot of listening when uh, it comes to what's been going on around here over the last year, and I've got a lot of more listening to do. And Friday night, we had a great hour discussion, a three-hour discussion, a great discussion at a former elder's home with five or so uh, other people, and it was very honest and very helpful. And I need that kind of honesty, and I'm looking forward to many more conversations. And in so many ways, it's far too early to draw any kind of conclusions. Uh, We're blind men feeling an elephant. But I would say this, under it all, if you followed everything Jim Murphy said in that message, you'd have the foundation for working this through. So please listen to it again, December 9th, 2018. You might download the transcript as well and put it in your Bible and meditate on it uh, again and again. I saw yesterday that today I'm standing on the shoulders of a giant of a sermon through which God has prepared the way, Lord willing, for what we'll be saying today. When I candidated here a few weeks ago, I said, you need to know that I would let the meaning of Scripture uh, be expounded to its full effect and let the cards fall where they may, whatever passage we happen to be in. For those of you who came to uh, uh, the Saturday sessions, many of you didn't, you may remember that I quoted from Robert Hart who said, it is not the duty of the clergy to blunt the sharpness, to soften the hammer, to quench the fire. Woe to the preacher who protects the people from the word that kills. Because he protects them also from being made alive, truly and forever alive. Woe to the preacher who acts as a buffer, deflecting the force of scriptures to soften the blow. Because in protecting the people from the stroke, he prevents their healing. If you are expounding, and some advice to preachers from Robert Hart, if you are expounding on passages that speak of life and death, then elaborate on life and death. If they speak of repentance, then preach that men should repent. When they encourage faith, proclaim faith. When they warn of hell and judgment to come, then blow the trumpet as a faithful watchman on the walls. 
when they comfort, speak as a pastor who feeds the sheep. Next week, we'll launch into Psalm 103, which is really, of all the Psalms, the Psalm of the Father, where for five weeks, we will encounter the grace and mercy of the Father. We'll encounter comfort that will indeed feed the sheep. But this week, once again, you might say it's the rod and staff of the shepherd, which if you're like David, you'll say they comfort me too. Or at least you'll, we say that in hindsight, right, once it's over. You might say that the core of this passage that we'll be uh, expounding on today is all wrapped up in this prayer. Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, I haven't lost my temper, I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And then, from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Amen? The help that comes, ultimately, we're going to see today uh, at the foot of the cross. Revelation 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed are they who heed. Blessed are they who are ready. You know, this really dates me, but remember Yule Brenner, way back when, of, of King and I fame? That old movie, some of you know that he did a 15-second public service announcement uh, at the very end of his life, and it appeared on TV years ago, courtesy of the American Cancer Society. He smoked five packs of cigarettes a day starting at the age of 12, so guess what happened? Not surprisingly, he died of lung cancer in October of 1984, and he agreed to do this ad before his death, and soon after his death, they aired it on all three networks. And it started with an eerie voice, ladies and gentlemen, the late Yule Brenner. And sure enough, there he was. There was that unmistakable face, the, the bald head, you know, the steely uh, Russian eyes. And he looked straight into the camera, and without flinching, he said, now that I'm gone, I have one thing to say. Don't smoke. I tell you, whatever you do, just don't smoke. End of commercial. You might say that here in the book of Revelation, it's like John comes, uh, c- comes back from the future too and he's seen his whole life passing before his eyes. He's seen heaven and hell and eternal rewards and eternal punishments. He's seen the whole world and everything even Christians uh, base their lives on going up in smoke, going to hell in a handbasket, living as though there's, we're answerable to no one like many Christians do in America. And in Revelation 1.3, he looks us straight in the eyes. And without flinching, he says, blessed are those who heed the words of the prophecy of this book. I wish there were time to unpack this, but basically he means this. Now that I'm back, I have one thing to say. Be ready. I tell you, whatever you do, take heed and be ready. This is the main purpose of the book of Revelation, to make us ready. 
whatever your view of the book when it comes to views of eschatology. John's goal is the same as, in, as Paul's in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. This is the Bema seat where Christians will be judged for how they live their lives. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men, we persuade churches, we persuade Christians to be ready. He's saying we need some godly fear in light of what's coming that should impact the way we live now and the way we handle our relationships and our divisions and all of the rest. There's more at stake than most people realize when it comes to all these things, including church divisions. And sometimes one of the things we most need to bring us to our senses, if you're anything like me, is a healthy dose of the fear of God. One that puts us all on level ground at the foot of the cross pointing fingers at no one but ourselves who will all individually appear before the judgment seat of God. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in our differences that we, whether in marriages or friendships or churches or whatever, that we forget the big picture and that is the prospect, indeed the peril of what looms before us, of who looms before us ready to come. The prospect of his coming, Roman numeral one in your notes. One that moved John essentially to say, I tell you, whatever you do, just be ready. That's the main purpose of this book, again, according to verse three, that we take heed and be ready. But ready for what? Well, that's verse seven, which is the main prophecy of the book. Where John says, behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. That's not exactly, you know, a a smiley face introduction. A seeker-friendly introduction to the book. It wouldn't play well in, in many American churches. But we're going to see that this is good advice. It's really good advice. Even for Christians. To mourn now so we won't have to mourn then. So as John said elsewhere, we won't have to shrink back in shame at his coming. He's talking to Christians there. So we'll be ready. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. The the main thing that John focuses on when it comes to Christ's coming is that he's coming with the clouds. Powerful image. All through the Old Testament, the clouds stand for God's judgment. And so this means that the period of his coming is not going to be a very happy time. It's going to be a very cloudy era, a troubled period of human history, just as cloudy eras of his judgment cycle through history. That's one way of viewing Revelation, and it's a true way of viewing it, that he comes again and again. He doesn't doesn't just give the world over and then wait to come, and then heaven comes. Cloudy eras of his judgment cycle through history and indeed they cycle through our own lives as he disciplines his people in his church to make us ready. Which is why in chapters 4 to 19 of Revelation for 16 of 22 chapters you have the judgment of the world uh, by Christ the worthy judge, the judgments that will precede his coming. 
And in the two chapters that come just before this long section, in chapters two and three, you have the admonishment of the church where he first judges his own people. For judgment must begin with the household of God, according to Peter. And in these two chapters, he says essentially, get your act together, repent. He uses this word six times in chapters two and three with with six of the seven churches. Repent now or I'm going to come to you with the clouds. Repent now or I will come to you, as he says to Thyatira, and make war against you with the sword of my mouth. Are you ready? Revelation 2.6, so you better take heed to the words of the prophecy of this book and be ready. Or I will come to you, as he said to the church at Ephesus, the Bible church, and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Revelation 2.5, unless you repent. That is, I'm going to decommission you as a church. Oh yeah, this is the admonishment of the churches. And before he does that, he does the same with none other than his best friend, the Apostle John, in the chapter just before here in chapter one, to make him ready. It's a chapter that climaxes with exactly what it means to be ready, as we're going to see, starting in verse 10, where John says, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Like we saw last week, this was a rude awakening even for the great apostle. It's like he'd been asleep. He felt fall asleep again, like we all do. And then it says in verse 13 that he saw one like a son of man, who we saw is the gold standard next to the miserable shadows of what we've become in our sin. And just how is he the gold standard and how will he come across when he comes? Verse 14 His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow. This is the wisdom that can only come, you know, with age. And in this case, it's a wisdom that's been seasoned and that's been deepened for all eternity. And so there's no debating what he sees or what he says or what he does. His doings are beyond all questioning. Like Solomon said, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Hair of this white like wool means there's no questioning what he's going to go on to do to John or the churches or the world. What he goes on to see or say or do, not just in the book, but with me and you. And what does he do with John with hair white like wool? Lord, let the light, your light, shine upon us. Just look. He says his eyes were like a flame of fire. John discovered that indeed no, there is no creature hid from his sight. He knew that in theory. Now he knows it in practice. Hebrews 4.13 But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. John was like, like a deer in the headlights. The secrets of his heart, all his hidden faults, down to his thoughts and and, and intentions were like cringing in the break of day. We're taught. And his feet, verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. It's talking about molten metal here. This is the molten 
energy of feet that break into the temple and trample down our idols. Seeing that would feel like being threatened. Seeing those feet like burnished bronze is the threat of being trampled underfoot at any moment. And his voice, verse 15b, was like the sound of many waters. That's an intensive in the Greek. It's like it was thundering like Niagara Falls, like this torrential storm. And out of his mouth, verse 16b, came lightning, like a sharp two-edged sword, which means John was at the eye of the storm and Christ was talking to him. And his words were Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He knew it in theory, but now he knows it in practice. Hebrews 4.12, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword in his face, verse 16c. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Lord, shine on us. This is the flush, it's the flash of, of good health. It's the, it's, it's the blaze of his supreme well-being. It's the, it's the nuclear flash of sanctifying glory. It's the supreme confidence of one who has nothing to fear because he's got nothing to hide, as James says, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Unlike the poor wretch cringing before him who was filled with nothing but shame. Who said, when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as a dead man. What's going on here? Is what happened to Isaiah when he beheld the glory of the Lord and he said, Whoa! Is me. He was pronouncing judgment on himself. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's what David confessed in Psalm 38. My iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. I'm flat on my face as though dead. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. I am benumbed and badly crushed. Trampled underfoot. And it wasn't just in Bible times that these ha- things happened. It's what Jonathan Edwards saw all around him during the first great awakening, as some of you know. He said at the heart of that great revival, what it all sprang out of was death. They experienced what John did in Revelation 1. He wrote that they were cast down low and in the dust in humility and poverty of spirit. They had a solemn sense of the infinite greatness of divine things, the awful excellency of Christ and the majesty of God in the face of their own depravity. And so it was with John, his awful eyes had seen right through him his words had laid him bare and his glory was weighing heavily on every twist and turn of his depravity and there was no deceit to crawl out from under it anymore John recognized him instantly this man shaped 
entity who one day is going to storm into this world of man-shaped phantoms who is, who is holy, 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 just like we sang in this magnificent perfection of all his attributes that was looming over him. Next to the miserable shadows of what we've become. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon conjured this. He really conjured kind of this state in a prayer, a prayer that captures what was going on in John and Isaiah and in David and in Jonathan Edwards and, and maybe in you too. And he prayed this. You might pray it with me silently if it has been doing that to you. Pray, close your eyes if you feel led and pray with me. This is preparation for Communion. Our Father, we once thought that those descriptions of our wicked hearts were somewhat strained, but not now. For had it not been for your restraint, we in our unsaved state were capable of anything. And even now, the old sin that abides in us is capable of reaching to a high degree of depravity. And without the new life within us restraining the old death, we know not what we might yet become. Oh, this base heart of ours, has it enough enough in it to set on fire the course of our lives and our churches? Any one of us left to ourselves would dishonor Christ, deny the Lord that bought us, and turn us back to the broad road to hell. We once thought we were humble, but we soon found that our pride will feed on any flattery that is laid at the door. We thought we were believers, but sometimes we are so doubting, so unbelieving, so vexed with skepticism that we would certainly not choose to follow you. That is your work in us. It is a wonder that you should even look on man at all. He is the most hateful object in creation because he slew your son. Yet truly, there is no sight that gives you more pleasure than man, for Jesus was a man, the son of man. And the brightness of his glory covers all our shame. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Amen. Something like that was going on in John. And as a result, look what happens then. Verse 17b. He laid his right hand on me. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Just like we sang, Lord, let the grace, grace from your hand, fall on us. Do not be afraid. How can this be? Amazing love, how can it be? For thus says the high and exalted one, Isaiah 57, 25, who lives forever, here's how it can be, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with the lowly and contrite of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's what was going on. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51.17. Which is just what happened to John. 
and what we desperately need to happen to us. This one who is holy, 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 this man-shaped thing, this awesome being was moved with compassion and he stretched out his hand and touched him. The, the, the storm subsided suddenly and the still small voice said do not be afraid I am the first and the last the living one and I was dead and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades suddenly John's at the foot of the cross Christ takes him back there to the empty cross where he was dead but now he is alive forevermore and at the foot of the cross he's saying I paid the penalty for all this laying you low right now and you need it to be laid low in order to fully embrace it and appreciate it and live on the basis of it I've been there in your behalf. I've I've shouldered those sins and I died and I came back from the dead and I've got the key now, the cross of Calvary. So watch me turn it. Watch me turn your death into life because you're in me now and that's the pattern of your life. And this broken man rose up and went on to write what may be the greatest book in Scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the capstone of Scripture, the fifth gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ in his glory. Because having, having slayed him, Christ then raised him. Having convicted him, he went on to commission him to write the book, verse 19. To write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. You know, you could write as a banner over this entire chapter based on what happens in this chapter and based on this verse. You could write as a banner over this entire chapter and not only over this chapter but but over our lives and not only over our lives but over our whole congregation that he devastates before he delegates. He devastates with that nuclear flash of his holiness that lays us low before he delegates more of his fullness. It's like V. E. Raymond Edmund, Edmund wrote, he said, when God wants, listen to this, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man or a woman or a whole church, when God wants to make and mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how ruthlessly he perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay that only he can understand. while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when our good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses us by every act induces us to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Amen.
putting last week and this week together, he is giving us the splendor of the Son of Man, our source and our destiny. And for that to happen, he's got to prepare the way to ream out the room, to trample down more of our idolatry, our iniquity, our folly with feet that are like burnished bronze so he can fill us with more of his glory. Application. What we see here at the very end of the Bible, which in the Greek way of writing is the most important place, what we see here at the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ what we see in, in like this one unforgettable apocalyptic picture so we'll never forget it is the fundamental pattern of the Christian life and the fundamental discipline of the Christian walk under it all. What John went through is this recurring pattern of death to life that happens again and again in our lives after the pattern of the cross. It's the power of his resurrection through the fellowship of his sufferings and there's no other way to that power. What we see here is the fundamental pattern of the Christian life, of death to life, of emptiness to fullness, of, of groaning to glory. And it's the fundamental discipline of the Christian walk. Which is this, just to go to the cross. So important that it's built into our monthly calendar. It's just to go to the cross where the same can happen to us again and again as happened to John. The fundamental discipline of the Christian walk is to go to the cross with nothing but your complete inadequacy, with nothing but your total depravity, with nothing but your abject need, and to come from the cross forgiven entirely. How can this be? Filled with his mercy. And the power of his complete sufficiency. Let me say that again. It's so important. The fundamental discipline of the Christian walk is just to go to the cross with nothing but your complete inadequacy, nothing but your total depravity, with nothing but abject need, and to come from the cross forgiven entirely, filled with his mercy and the power of his complete sufficiency. And he'll do anything to get us there. The ground of our unity, the level ground for unity where we're all the same is at the foot of the cross. It's like the old hymn, the one that's titled The Ground is Level. Remember that one? At the foot of the cross, it doesn't matter who you are or what's your name. At the foot of the cross, my friend, everyone stands the same. And it's on that basis that we will have the humility and mercy to discuss and resolve our differences. And it's on that basis alone that we will have the humility and mercy which according to James you need in order to judge correctly and without which you will not judge correctly. So what's the bottom line? Well, you can sum it up by filling in the blanks at the bottom of your notes. In many ways, this is the ultimate solution to division, as I've titled this message, or at least it's the foundation we can build on as we work things through. And again, listen to Jim Murphy's message. There's a lot there that relates to this. Application, Roman numeral three, like John, stay in touch with your depravity at the foot of the cross, not their depravity. 
and stay in touch with his fill-in-the-blank mercy toward you and toward them equally. And then stay involved to his glory. That is, be like John. Don't withdraw because of anger or shame or embarrassment. I, I understand the need to take a break and to get away from it all. Julie and I have had to do that over the years. But in the end, like John, he got back in the pulpit and stayed involved to his glory. And you need to do the same. Which leads us to the final takeaways at the very bottom of your notes. It's what you can do in your heart of hearts as the foundation for the solution to our divisions. One, be fill in the blank, remorseful. Because it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord. Fill in me three times, standing in the need of prayer. Be remorseful. And two, be hopeful. Because indeed, he devastates before he delegates.